Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Welcome to episode 68 of the Cyber Guy Podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. This episode, we are going to talk about certifications, specifically cyber certifications with Casey Marks of IESC Squared, the company, or actually the nonprofit that manages CISSP certifications. So we're going to talk with him about how certifications came to be. Are they the better option than degrees? All sorts of things. More information about certifications than you probably ever thought you wanted to know, but it's a great conversation. It really, I learned a lot about how the certification game came to be. I had some good questions, or I think I had to get some good questions about certain things within the certification field. Uh, I think you will enjoy it. We'll have that coming up here in just a couple minutes. But before we get there, a couple items to start with. Let's start with botnets. That is our educational focus of the week, primarily because I was recently on a podcast by Red Hat called Command Line Heroes. This was season nine, episode four. It was called Dawn of the Botnets. Uh, they talked to three people about the history of botnets, things like that. I'm on there to kind of look at it from a law enforcement perspective. And so what is a botnet for those who have heard the term but aren't really familiar with what exactly they are? An internet bot, just in general, is a software application that performs automated tasks by running scripts over the internet. And they perform simple, structured, repetitive class, uh, tasks that humans can't do quite as quickly. The problem is, as with all good technology, the bad guys figured out how to utilize these things for malicious and exploitive means. And that kind of started in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, where hackers started to compromise computers all over the world, and then they would create botnets, which were basically slave computers that they had with applications on them that they could then use to do a variety of different attacks on networks that they were interested in. These could be denial of service attacks. These could be the spreading of virus or malware. Uh, a lot of them in the early years were for emails. So they were spam bots. They would just, when you get all those, those spam messages, those mostly come from botnets that are designed to anonymize the location of the bad guys um, where they actually are. <laughs> I was going to say location again, but you know, it is what it is. So, and they, bad guys use these zombie computers, if you will, to, to, to do all of these malicious and exploitive things. So there is actually, the oldest one can be traced back to an in, emergence of Internet Relay Chat in 1988. Uh, this is from a website called Abusic, A-B-U-S-I-X.com. This is a blog by Tobias, Tobias Necht, who is the founder and CEO of the company. So reading from his article here. Says the first bots were used on uh, used on IRC were and I'm not going to pronounce it, but they were um, essentially automated services for users to sit in a channel and keep the server from closing down. Because in IRC, which was one of the original online messaging areas or, or discussion forums, it wasn't even a forum. It was they were they were servers and there were rooms in there to talk about a whole host of different things. But if everybody left the room, the server disappeared. So if you wanted to maintain management of the room, you had to stay in there. So they would use botnets to allow them to um, keep control of that room. Cause if you created the room, you, you own the room. So these botnets were used to kind of do that. Nothing legal with that. But of course, as with all good technology, bad guys figured out 
how they could use it for a variety of reasons. And in the years that followed, botnet creators were able to use infected machines to carry out various attacks, such as ransomware, information theft, and, and so on and so forth. So one of the big cases I've talked about in the past is the Mafia Boy case from 2000. This was a 16-year-old kid in um, uh, Canada who had a botnet of several hundred thousand computers. He, he compromised them, put, applica- put an application on there that allowed him to control them to do the variety of things. And he did denial of service attacks against, um, against a bunch of commercial, commercial websites like CNN and Amazon and things like that. So some v- somewhat famous um, botnets you may have heard of, Storm, was the first known peer-to-peer botnet. That is, it was among the first to be controlled by several different servers. It had up to a million infected computers. Uh, There was Kraken in 2008. Uh, It's hard to know exactly how big the Kraken botnet was, but it had roughly infected 10% of all Fortune 500 companies. Uh, And so it sent out a lot of spam um, information. You had Mariah in 2016, M-I-R-A-I. It was behind a massive denial of service attack that left much of the internet inaccessible on the East Coast in 2016. But what made it most notable was that it was the first one to infect insecure Internet of Things devices. At its peak, it had infected over 600,000 devices. Most surprising of all, it was created by a group of college kids looking to gain an advantage in Minecraft. Yes. Awesome. How, how, how can you not love that? And then 2018 Eve spelled three V E was the mother of, was the mother to three distinct yet interconnected sub operations, each of which perpetrated ad fraud and were able to skillfully evade detection. Again, all these used for, you know, at the end of the day, if you had one of these bots on your system, you may not have seen much activity. It wasn't really looking to steal information from you. It was used looking to use these devices that they had infected, um, to, to target other things, uh, not, so not necessarily you know, cause a lot of damage to the computer it was infected upon. So moving quickly to our thread of the week, this is an article from ZDNet, and it's not a general thread, but it just kind of goes to show that there's a vulnerability, a Microsoft Exchange server vulnerability that was released or at least documented last year. I mean, it got so bad that the FBI had actually went in and fixed this vulnerability on a variety of different networks um, using some some legal means. But this is an article by Danny Palmer from ZDNet on April 6th, and the title is These Sneaky Hackers Hid Inside Their Victim's Network for Nine Months. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out, because this is not really a big thing, but it, they used Microsoft's Exchange server to, to con- create a cyber espionage operation uh, where they were in networks for a long time. So reading from the article, a hacking and cyber espionage operation is going after victims around the world in a widespread campaign designed to snoop on targets, steal information. Identified victims of the cyber attacks include organizations in government, law, religious groups, non-governmental organizations, the pharmaceutical sector, and telecommunications. Multiple countries have been targeted, including the U.S., Canada, Hong Kong, Japan, Turkey, Israel, India, Montenegro, and Italy. Now, this is from APT10 which is uh, Cicada is the name of that APT. This is a APT that is uh, named that way from Semantic. 
uh, and they are linked to the Chinese Ministry of State Security, MSS. Hey, shocking. China has an advanced persistent threat that is looking to steal information from companies. Well, color me shocked. The reason I'm pointing this out is Canada, regardless of what China says about, oh, we're not hacking other countries' companies, they are full of crap. You cannot believe them and understand they are going to get into networks, weave their way in, and stay in until detected. And in most cases, you're looking at nine months to a year, if not more. So I think the reason I point out this article is I think nine months is probably a best case scenario. And chances are these companies that were identified as being impacted didn't figure it out on their own. Either the FBI, DHS, NSA, somebody contacted them and said, hey, we see this in this traffic on your network. You may want to look into it. And it was all linked to APT-10, the Chinese Ministry of State Security. So with that, the Chinese Ministry of State Security is our threat of the week. Uh, Them, Russia, can pretty much switch off week to week for being the threats of the week, but that's the one we are pointing out today. So without any further ado, let's get to our interview of the week. Well, I want to welcome to the Cyber Guy podcast, Casey Marks, the Chief Qualifications Officer for... ISC2, which stands for the International Information System Security Certification Consortium, which is probably why they use ISC squared, not two, ISC squared, sorry. Uh, They are the organization that hands out or gives the tests and the certifications and the classes for the CISSP, one of the most well sought after certifications in the cybersecurity world. Casey, thanks so much for taking the time to, to come on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being, I love, I love to be here. And it's, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. Great. And uh, so we both have education backgrounds. This is, I think you're the, might be the first fellow education background that I've had. That wasn't an FBI agent, a couple of those that were used to be FBI agent 12. (laughs) So let's first talk about your background, uh, your specialty area and so on. How did you get started and what it is you do? Because the difference in this podcast and most of my other podcasts, you are not necessarily a cybersecurity practitioner per se. You are an educational testing practitioner. Is that, that safe to say? That is absolutely accurate. Um, I will be fooling no one if I try to pretend to be a security professional. In fact, usually um, almost all of my uh, conversations when I started ISC Squared um, usually say start with some along the lines of, I am not a security expert, I am not a practitioner, but what I am is, and that's what I usually have to lead in with. So no, I am not a practitioner, I am not credentialed at ISC Squared, I hold none of our certifications, not because they're not wonderful certifications, um, of which we have many, including uh, CISSP. Um, But I am uh, an education person by background, but very specifically, I am a psychometrician. Um, So my background is in uh, uh, educational and psychological measurement, uh, standardized testing, um, of which there are many examples that I, I could go into, uh, but I only practice within the area of cybersecurity currently. Okay, so so let's so talk about standardized testing. Um, from SATs to MCATs, I've taken both. Didn't enjoy either one. I've taken the ACT, I've taken the GRE, I've taken tons of them. What is it that, how are they built? Let me, let's start with that. How, how do you, so if, when the first person said, we need to make a assessment to test everybody's knowledge, how do you, how do you build such a thing? Well, let let me tell you, you're not the first person to tell me that they don't like taking an exam. Um, (laughs) This has been my, as I've done this for now over 25 years, it is so much better to make the test than take the test. You know, obviously uh, there's a whole, there is an art and science to, to, uh, to delivering um, examinations that are, are, are truly 
um, independent of, of the content area. You know, these are these are construct valid examinations. They need to be reliable and valid. Um, they need to measure what we expect them to measure, and we need to do it uh, repeatedly or reliably. And so that there is an art and science to to crafting these types of things. And um, you mentioned a couple of uh, great examples. Uh, the College Board uh, does, is responsible for the SAT, um, uh, practice exams for teachers. Um, most people are, have some familiar with it, familiarity with one of those. Um, if not the ACT exam, um, which is another college entrance exam. You talked about MCAT, um, Law School Admissions Council, um, uh, National Registry of uh, Emergency Medical Technicians. There are, I believe, the last count over 5,000 standardized programs in the United States alone. Um, one of the more famous ones that I worked on for a very long period of time was the uh, National Council Licensure Examination, the NCLEX examination, which is the um, entry-level uh, examination for all nurses within the United States and one of the largest um, licensure exams um, uh, anywhere effectively, but from, from a vocational standpoint, certainly in the United States. Um, it actually was the very first uh, commercially provided uh, computerized adaptive examination um, in 1994. Um, um, a little company called Prometric that uh, if you've taken any standardized exams, you may, be, you may have heard of, um, it actually helped launch that business in 1994. Okay, so how so how do you build these tests? I mean, what do you when you're when you're looking? I mean, I mean, it's they they do they look to ask the same questions different ways? Do they look to test in different areas? Um, so how do you how do you build one? How do you someone says, hey, we need so let's let's go back to ISC square start beginning. You probably weren't there for the creation of the CISSB, but someone had no. to say, let's make this <laughs> test that'll that'll test people's knowledge of general cybersecurity practices and so on and so forth, which well, we can get into I, that a little. I, I am old and I've been doing it a while, but I haven't been doing it that long. Right. So, uh, Fair well, enough. ISC Squared has been around for thir 35 years. Uh, we, you know, it, was, it was in the early 90s. Uh, so I'm, I'm fond of letting uh, mm -hmm. folks know that CISSP uh, was around be before the term cybersecurity was popular. So it was information security um, as a discipline. And so where does this come from? So, um, you know, uh, you, you asked the question um, kind of like, where does this all come from? How does this all begin? And, and not to do the history thing argument and, and discussion because we don't have weeks, uh, we don't have a college semester to, to cover. <laughs> sure. yeah. But I can tell you that, um, you know, there are examples in the Bible, there are examples in uh, uh, in China, um, uh, uh, AD of, of, of civil service exams, um, that the concept of, of testing, uh, having a fit for purpose test to be able to, to identify individuals um, and, and competency, if you will, competence, uh, whether it be minimum competence or self-selecting the, the, the top um, you know, the, the, the chosen selected few um, for more of a restrictive mechanism has been going on for obviously millennia. It's been a long time. But um, while ISC squared is, is, is the granddaddy in the cybersecurity space, 30-ish um, years um, in, in one form or another with regard to CISSP and, and, and our other certification programs, um, it all started with the idea of, boy, we have, in, in this case, practice that's important to us. Uh, the, the idea of a, a general professional, um, practitioner then professional uh, in many respects, of, of cybersecurity practice. What does it mean to be able to secure these assets? What does it mean to have the knowledge, skills, and abilities um, and the wherewithal to deploy them ethically and effectively to be able to create a body of, or emanating from a body of knowledge to have a practice, a professional practice that is somehow coherent 
comprehensive um, towards a certain aim. And so if you'll, if you'll permit me, um, it's not unlike what happens in medicine, law, engineering, nursing, um, uh, emergency medicine, uh, EMTs, what have you, uh, 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 paramedics, um, where there is a definable body of practice. Um, and and in, in most licensed professions, you actually do have a practice act that at least within the United States at the state level is the, um, the basically the do's and don'ts. Um, this is what this is what practice, this is what nursing entails. This is what a registered nurse can do. This is what a, an MD can do. This is what a, um, a lawyer can do. So in the professional certification space, our client in our, and who we serve, the stakeholders who we serve, if you will, is not a, a state licensing board, but it's a profession. So in this case, it is literally um, a coalition of the willing, if you will, to, to draw <laughs> an old uh, term back uh, in, in, for, for purpose here, um, of individuals who want to be recognized for knowledge, skills, and abilities in a very certain way at a certain level to be able to have a designation saying, we've agreed to all these things. We, we have self-attested. We have put ourselves through an independent third-party mechanism to be able to say, we are the best of the best, and this is how we represent and identify ourselves. Okay. And is that why, so when you take the tire, you get certified license in any of these professions, then you keep sure. your license by getting CPE credits. Is that mm -hmm. what keeps the certification current by doing those credit hours that are authorized to say, this is a CPE credit. And if you take this, then if you do 30 hours or whatever, whatever the number is, then your certification stays current. Or are there some that you have to take the same test every three years? So those are different mechanisms, um, and I can tell you, so yes, there is a, 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 a currency and competency, a continuing education, continuing, continuing competency type mechanism for an individual. So the same as what we have for an examination in terms of what we do in terms of keeping the content current and the certification current, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit in terms of some of the, the meat of the mechanics, with regard to an individual practitioner, there are different uh, schools of thought and there are different theories. Um, at ISC Squared, um, we like to test once, pass, move forward, maintain all the aspects of, of, of certification, and then maintain currency from a professional development and education standpoint. So that is in somewhat contrast. There are other um, professional bodies um, within, within, excuse me, within cybersecurity and the certification field in general that will say, Mm, that's one model. What we prefer is um, based on how frequently we believe practice changes, we would like to reassess people on that schedule. So whether it be a year, two years, three years, five years, we're going to have you retest. But ISC squared, um, the model that we, and this is, is a very commonly utilized model. Um, we, we have our test plan that changes once every three years based on an analysis of practice amongst our practitioners, 160,000 strong that can contribute to the, to the job task analysis survey. We have volunteers who come in that look at how difficult that exam should be on, an, on, on, our, on this uh, training, training cycle. And then what we do is once you've gotten there and you've passed and you've maintained your certification, um, you, 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 you attest the, to, to the ethical canons, um, you, you maintain all the requirements. Um, obviously, there are, there are fees to be able to maintain a program like this because nothing happens for free in the world. Um, and then, of course, the CPE schedule. And so the idea of the, the, idea of the, uh, the continuing professional education unit or educational credit, um, if you will, is, is that you are to maintain a level of currency with, in relation to the examination test plan. And so um, these education pieces, it's, it's not to replicate everything, but it's to have some level of professional to ensure that 
when someone sees the letters after your after your name, um, and if you whether you were certified yesterday or nine ago, um, that you should still be competent with the, within those domains, the, the practice areas of the exam. So do 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 professional associations work with ISC squared to come up with what those continuing professional education credits are? Um, and, and I'm curious how that works. And, I, and I, because I have done presentations for organizations and say, hey, tell us what you're talking about, because we want to get certified for a CPE hour. And I don't know how what I'm talking about as an FBI agent who works cybersecurity can meet that standard, but clearly it did every time that I did these things. So how does how does that process work? And part of this is part of this is honestly is the minutia of the security realm. But I think it's important for people who have these certifications to know how to how to keep them because once it's they're not easy to get. Once you get them, you don't want to forget that you have them. Because I have I got one from a company, a GS. No, it was from, it was a SANS course. It was a, G, a JX certification. And I just didn't yeah, care. Yeah, I, honestly, yeah. I didn't care about the, I didn't care about the test. I didn't care about the class. They paid for me to go. I got I passed the test by like one question, and I never got it. I never did any CP credit, so it's a well lapsed, and that's fine. I don't really need it for what I do. But all that to be said, if 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 this you know when you get Security Plus or Net Plus or any of these other entity yeah. certifications, you know, so as I, I kind of went off path of my original question, no, how does no, how does no. my how does my hour talk meet a CPE credit? So you know, so that's that's an interesting question because there's there's an evaluative component to that. So it, there is a there's an essential tension between kind of the motivating um, the, the candidate or the, or the member or the certification holder in terms of, of of staying curious, staying competent, staying somewhat in practice, um, but also engaging in content areas that it's not just rote. Uh, memorization or coverage of topics that are, are long since passed. So. Mm. Um, we are most organizations are, are pretty engaged and pretty broad based right so there has to be a tie um if you look at it, it for isc squared as an example um we have different schedules of cpes there are professional development things like going to conferences and and being engaged and writing books and and, and things like along this line along uh, this line it, it, professional um, uh, activities like at IC Square, like being an item writer and, and things like that for our examinations. Um, and then there's also very specific educational things like taking courses and um, uh, webinars and um, uh, take, uh, additional certifications often qualify for another certification because there's studying involved in, in different uh, related domains, right? Because there's, there's, there's a high degree of overlap. But the, the quality aspect with regard to it um, uh, it is vetted from a couple of different areas, one being a, a qualified provider. And I can tell you every industry struggles from this standpoint because um, being on stage at a conference could be a variable quality, right? right. Like a webinar, sure, yeah. uh, uh, reading a magazine article and providing a report and answering questions, things like that. Um, there's a balance. We At ISC Squared, I can tell you that uh, we do take uh, continuing professional education very seriously. Um, that's one reason why we don't have the retesting mechanism is because once you've tested and you've kind of through, we want to make sure that you stay engaged as a, as a professional learner moving forward. Um, we do provide in, so in two different areas. Um, we accept and validate, to, uh, to your point, um, uh, CPEs from other organizations, uh, whether it be professional, professional education, you know, what have you, um, conferences, books, what have you. We also provide a significant amount of education as part of your membership program. We have something called the, the Professional Development Institute, um, over 40 courses um, 
that can be extremely hands-on. And we've had you know, cyber range activities and we've had you know, specific um, you know, uh, ransomware type, type things. I mean, you name the, the discipline and the topic, you know, uh, Internet of Things, you know, you, just all types of just like more specialized, uh, you know, hands-on type, type um, uh, work that um, it, there's instructional designers, um, there are um, uh, course objectives. And so the, the time and the competencies and, and the knowledge, skills and abilities, again, much like the original exam that come out of the CPE experience have to relate back. And they're, they're pretty rigorous. They are assessment based um, and you need to perform at a certain level to demonstrate that you've actually learned something and you're staying competent in your field. Okay. Well, speaking of the assessments, I got a question I meant to ask a little earlier, but for taking the SAT. So the SAT, you get a, a maximum 800 points per section. So you can have a 1600 or with the new written parts, 2400. ACT is based on 34, I think is the max, or 36, whatever. The, I think it's 36, actually. Um, I don't know what CISSP's path, you know, top grade is. When I went to high school, middle school, everything was based on 100. Why can't y'all just use 100? If you get an 85 out of 100, you pass. What have I told you it actually is? Um, oh, yeah. And what have I told you that it could be, it could be worse? Um, so he, here's the thing. So as I said, as I said before, I'm a psychometrician. Sure. I, I deal with numbers behind the scenes. I, I crunch numbers. We do scaling. Um, we work in probabilistic models to basically what we look to do is reliably separate two groups of people, passers and failures. And okay. Whatever that line is, is what experts tell us it is, not what psychometricians say. It's what the practitioners say is this is the line of demarcation. But what we try to do is make sure that we can reliably sort people into two groups. That's, that is the that is the layperson definition of reliability. If you have good reliability, you have two groups. If you have great reliability, you have three groups. If you have unbelievably statistically good reliability, it's more than that and it's probably a lie. But that's a whole, that's a whole But what you're talking to, this is a phenomenon called scaling. Um, where what we do is we actually, these numbers that we talk about, um, you know, you talked about the 36 on the ACT, you talked about 800 on, on the SAT. At ISC squared, 700 is a passing number, a passing result. And it is scaled such that people understand what that means because when you don't pass the exam, you get feedback. Mm -hmm. You get your 680 or your 640 or your 580 for some people. Um, but we, we we try to do is we try to provide some level of guidance in terms of how far you were from the passing standard. Truth be told, and the wonderful example, and I used to have this when I was at nursing, because we didn't scale our scores. We used to report in something called logits, log odd probability units. And so what that would mean to the layperson, and if you've if you've ever known someone uh, pursuing um, their 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 entry level nurse license RN or PN, um, it's maddening because <laughs> of the way that we talked about it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But we would say things like the passing standard is point negative six eight on the NCLEX scale. Okay, and you would that, only that find out if you passed or failed. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we we did stuff like that. We did evil things like that. But the point is. Uh, we could have easily done what we do at ISC squared. And truth be told is there is a continuum. So every person and every item that you receive in an examination is on the same measurement scale. And so what we do is you get rank ordered relative to, to the performance on items relative to other people. And it's a line on that scale, which is the passing standard, which has been determined by experts. So behind the scenes, it's actually computed to five, excuse me, seven significant decimal places in terms of your performance. 
Um, but there's error around these estimates. We take these things into account. Um, we do with a certain degree of, of, of competence. So we have a 95% competence interval with regard to your result as an, uh, as an individual. That's why we use computerized adaptive testing, which I can get into later because that's one of my areas of, uh, of hobby, if you will. Okay. Um, but at the end of the day, what we do is we take this very, very long number, this prob probability, and what we do is convert it to a number that um, in the purpose of our exercise, if it's 700 or better, you're very happy. If it's less than 700, you're either going to be very angry or you're going to tell me that why it should be 700. <laughs> yeah, is there any way for people to say, hey, I got, well, it's 700 out of what, 1,000? What's the max score? So let's say you got it. Has anyone ever got 1,000? Let me ask that question. Um, has anyone ever? Um, I can tell you when it was a linear exam, and what I mean is it is a static fixed form examination when, when CISST was six hours. <laughs> um, it is entirely possible that someone would have gotten every item correct. I cannot validate that off the top of my head. It's doubtful, but it's possible. Nowadays, as we are an adaptive examination, and what that means is the, the the difficulty of the items you receive is based on your past performance. Um, since we moved to CAT December 18th, um, 2018, no, no one's, no one's got okay. to And is, it, is, it, is, is there a value to say, hey, I got a 975 on my CISSP, that's why you should hire me, as opposed to someone who got a 701? Uh, thank you for asking that question. In, in, in complete sincerity, no. And there's a reason why statistically. So the way that we report, so even though we provide a scaled score to candidates who mm -hmm. do not pass the exam, and in fact, this is a pass-fail exam. Um, and what that means is once you approach a certain level and you statistically exceed the passing standard, which is the same for everyone, we pass you. Now, as it turns out, depending what your prior performance was and depending on the performance of items and the item selection algorithm, you could have legitimately have a final score of 740 or 840 with very little difference. Mm -hmm. We're not measuring with precision above the passing standard. What we are trying to do is we are trying to measure as finely around the passing standard as possible. And so um, what it is, we look to minimize the error associated with your exam estimate at the passing standard not at, not at the ends of the, the distribution. So well, the, per, the really poorly performing person, we don't need to ask ask them 150 items. We can get away with you know the, the minimum number of items because we don't need the level of precision. With a very able person, we can ask fewer items that are targeted more appropriately. And the error around it is an, an unnecessarily um, uh, isn't necessary at that point. It's only necessary around the passing standard. So why don't you just stop the test when they get to the passing part? We do. Oh, do you? Um, okay. so we do. We, we stop it when you exceed with 95% confidence the passing standard. Okay. So that we, we know reliably um, to be able to. And so that's a benefit. So uh, currently, uh, CIS, it, it, well, as we just announced recently, due to other reasons, we will be taking the exam to four hours, but it wasn't three hours. We need more pretest items, which is another issue. <laughs> um, but it used to be six hours. Yeah. Um, and it used to be significantly longer, and um, it was as much a, 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 a test of brute force as it was um, cybersecurity competence. Gotcha. So what got you interested in moving in the cyber certification area from where you were before? Um, genuine interest. Um, I've, uh, I've been fortunate to, to practice in a number of different areas. My background, I have done, um, I was, like I said, I was in nursing for a really long period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, as part of nursing, I was... Um, 
medication aids and in, 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 uh, fields like that. Um, my dissertation, I was able to actually uh, to work on when I was at nursing about clinical computerized standardized testing. So it was, it's, it was a great opportunity. Um, I've worked in, as I said, other allied healthcare areas uh, for a very long period of time, um, uh, 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 paramedics and EMTs, things like that. I was in language testing, English language testing for, for a number of years. Um, I moved into cybersecurity a couple of reasons. One, it's, uh, it's a very intriguing professional space um, as we have um, continued a, a professionalism that's, that's away from um, vendor-based and product-based certificates and certifications to be able to drive industry performance. It's, it's, it's for me, very personally intriguing, and I, I can talk more about that. Um, but it's, it, it's moving, um, it's a professionalization in, 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 in taking something from what is understood to be mostly, um, in most respects, like a classroom assessment and professionalizing it is that there's, there's really a significant industry in art and science to having a fair, reliable, and valid examination. Um, because in, in many respects, this isn't the most popular um, viewpoint, but, but when you think about why standardized testing exists, and, and, and perhaps you know, the examples that you raised earlier with, with the SAT, uh, the SAT and the GRE and, 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 and programs like that, they, they exist for very uh, meritocratic aims. And the idea is that if you think about college admissions before the 1950s, um, it's basically money and family. Um, not not um, educational um, uh, demonstration or, or knowledge or, or intelligence that would get you into college. It was who you know and, and where, where you knew them um, that would get you into many universities. So the idea of having a meritocratic uh, device to be able to allow all individuals to represent knowledge, and, and of course, it's not a perfect mechanism. We've learned over time kind of like how bias uh, it, it was developed in items and things like that, but um, you know, and I can address that. But but the idea was the idea to be meritocratic to be able to, to demonstrate and scale opportunity. And I feel that very strongly today. That's where we're at with regard to certifications. Is that I, I often have conversations. You know, why certs? I don't need certs. Certs are a limitation, not an opportunity. Um, and it's the idea that given the workforce needs in cybersecurity. There isn't one solution, um, but what I can tell you is that certifications do provide a certain level of assurance that can't be accomplished by um, internships and apprenticeships and regular college degree programs given cost time of av availability and demand. And so it takes all all these things to build a workforce that is absolutely necessary today. So there are quite a few companies that offer different types of certifications in addition to ISC squared. If you're a newbie in the cybersecurity field, let's say maybe you have an only associate's degree and you don't have the time or the, you know, maybe the funds to go to a four-year degree. And really in cybersecurity, mm -hmm. a lot of jobs don't need the four-year degree. They need the certifications. Is there a specific yes standard progression arc for certifications like i assume ciss is not what you get first because you have no. to, you have to have the work <laughs> you have to have the work experience to justify it so that's a later down the line but like where do you you know if 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 i was to tell a new cybersecurity analyst who comes out with an aa degree and nothing else what's where do they go first what's the, who do they look to first are you is cis squared have an in start through this progression to get to ciss you know we're doing better with that now. So let me let me answer that in, in two ways. One is kind of like um, where we've been, um, and then and can perhaps where we're going. So I, I firmly believe that um, cybersecurity, being a, uh, arguably a, a sub 
subspecialty, if you will, of information technology, mm-hmm. um, if you will, which is is not exactly tr- truly speaking, or is that not emanating from the direction? But historically, in terms of workforce and where people have come from, you were a network administrator, you were a system administrator, you were you were in IT, you know, maybe you've done you know, other areas, um, and you moved into security, whether it be by choice or by force, um, depending on kind of where you worked, right? right you know, yes. you, you had to do what you had to do, um, but. The world's changing. The demands of security um, uh, have been outstripping um, the supply in terms of where we've been. And so we, we do have new models. We are moving into different places. Uh, previously, previously, you know, um, you, may, you may or may not have started with the, with, the, with the two-year degree or a four-year degree and worked into information technology, and, and, and maybe you didn't. And maybe you have your, your Microsoft or, or your um, you know, Novell or, or Cisco certifications um, around, you know, basically product usage and product deployment and, and, and professionalism, you know, scaled up from those programs. Um, and it became a proof of concept that you moved into professional certifications, whether it be from ISC squared or other like organizations, generally speaking, um, vendor neutral, um, product independent, professional practice type certifications. Um, and that was a, that was kind of a model, but as we've seen the demands of cybersecurity, there's, there's lots of providers out there. So right now, ISC squared is right in the middle of a massive effort, to your point, no, CISSP is not where you start. Um, mm-hmm. And for many people, it is where you end. But for most people, it's a stop somewhere along the way. Um, we see CISSP misused in many cases. We see job descriptions that will say, you know, you know, one year experience, what have you, and it's like, and then require a CISSP. And it's like, well, that, that's not the prerequisites for this certification. Right. It's a misuse. So what are we doing? We are right now, ISC Squared is right now in the throes of a pilot program uh, for a new entry-level examination, um, which will be a certification program for the new career starter, whether they be fresh out of high school, whether they be at university, whether they be the 37-year-old single mother of of two who's transitioning from a career in you know a, a, a accountancy and wants to become a cybersecurity professional, um, you know there are different pathways that everyone takes, and so we are working towards uh, those aims. And and the great on ramp um, that we're developing right now is this new certification. And the idea is, where do you start? This is where you start. We're not going to. They're not going to have an experience requirement. There's a knowledge base. There's a there's a practical element to this um, in terms of, of education. But how do we get on that certification pathway that leads you towards maybe the CISSP? And that's where we're at today. Have you thought about, or has ICS squared, or has anybody else thought about looking into being able to offer certifications in high school before you even get out of high school? Like not, you know, you have to you have to be a high school graduate to be able to take the test. Why not go to some of these technology schools? Like here in Huntsville, we have a magnet school for the state of Alabama that's specifically engineering and cybersecurity. That's in the name of the school. So. Yes you know, it would seem to be beneficial for those folks to be able to come out of high school with three or four certifications. And it doesn't seem like it'd be a heavy lift for you, your company or other companies to generate curriculum that teachers can use that at the end of it, they take a test. I mean, my son had that when he went to college, he got a four-year degree. Um, And so, but he, he didn't take the test at the end of the the classes. He could have got certification. I just didn't, he didn't think about it, whatever, but um, you know, it's true. So I, I think I think your point is well taken. I think this is an area that we are we have been and we are exploring. 
um, in terms of, of having that, that, that proper fit for purpose. And I think that is one of the, uh, the, the motivating factors to be able to come up with a new entry level. Um, our uh, SSCP examination, which is a, which is a one-year experience requirement, um, uh, somewhat information technology-based, is embedded with many university programs currently. And so there are many universities where we, we provide content, we provide um, um, academic support, um, and we partner with them. So as part of a, perhaps a, either in lieu of a capstone project for, for a certain course or at a certain semester or a certain point in time, um, the attainment of the certification, because it, it's, it's, it's dual purpose. One, um, it allows curriculum to stay focused. Uh, uh, individuals are getting current current uh, practice, not just uh, theoretical you know, concepts, but a real world activity. Um, and they're actually getting a certification that as they progress through their education, they can be preparing, seeking, or finding employment against that as well. And that only helps towards, you know, towards the aim in terms of uh, completion. So let's talk about ICS squared. What's your bread and butter? I mean, we, everybody knows about the CISSP, but I got to believe you have more than just that. So what else do you, like, what else would, so let's, so let's, like you said, CISSP is later in your career. What, and you have the new certification coming out. You talked about the SSS, SSSP. Uh, so, <laughs> we have many different certifications, yes. <laughs> but I can go through all of them. So, but let me talk about ISC squared, maybe a little yeah, bit more than sure. just certification. Please, I think please this, do. Yeah, I think where we're at today, um, traditionally we've been understood as a as a certification body, and mm -hmm. people know CISSP more than ISC squared. Uh, that that's a fact as a brand. That's is the way that it's known. Um, it truth be told, we actually have nine certification programs. Each one of them is ANSI accredited to ISO 17024. And almost all all of them, yes, now all of them, are recognized on the DOD 8570 schedule, um, future 8140 with regard to uh, employment roles uh, with the Department of Defense, um, recognized around the world by a number of governments and, and, and consortia, regional consortia. Um, the new program that's coming will also be accredited um, for this purpose. But so, where are we at today? Everyone knows CISSP, it's, it's the bread and butter, but we're setting a new entry level exam. We have our SSCP exam, which is more of an IT focused uh, early career um, uh, certification program, CISSP. And then one thing that we really haven't talked about for the individual who is certified with CISSP is we have concentrations. We have three separate uh, independent concentrations. Um, and th those, um, you have to be CISP already, but th those are specialists uh, for people who want to advance in their careers. But in addition to that, we have authorization professional uh, uh, certification. We have uh, the LP, which is uh, for, for developers in terms of uh, uh, secure development. Um, we have uh, our, our CCSP, which is our, our most successful certification to date with regard to not total number of certifications, but um, rate of increase, which is our cloud-based. Um, certification professional um, that was uh, only only launched seven years ago, and there's 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 over ten thousand um, cloud-based professionals uh, globally, and it, it's it's our fastest growing uh, certification. Um, so we um, we uh, we hold these these other um, role and specialty-based certifications kind of um, at the side of the, the the generalist practitioner, the generalist professional stream that we, we talked about. But we also mm -hmm. have those. But more importantly than just the certification is. We have education against all of these certification schemes. We have the aforementioned um, Professional Development Institute that as a member, you have access to all of these 40 plus courses, content areas, but and if you're not a member, individuals can can, can purchase or engage with, with much of the content as well. Um, 
ISC Squared has grown quite a bit in terms of, of, of offerings, in terms of um, we do have events. Um, we have a security, con uh, a security Congress that happens globally. Um, two years ago, we had over 5,000 um, uh, individuals att attending the meeting. Um, we, we have uh, uh, secure events um, globally. Uh, there's actually one going on today, April 7th, uh, in London right now um, that's happening. Um, but so we have uh, a lot of activities from that standpoint. Uh, in addition to those types of things, um, you know, ISC Squared uh, has launched a new new advocacy effort to be able to promote the role in the profession of cybersecurity and how important that is an investment. Um, we do um, annual surveys and research, and probably our most well-known in the popular press is our, our workforce study, which a couple years ago, we've been doing this for years now, but a couple years ago, you know, we, we'd get a couple media hits now every year it's it's an event um, in terms of understanding where the workforce gap is for cybersecurity. Um, so it, it has it has become more than just um, having a certification which is obviously important for an individual um, and, and the recognition of the profession but it's also um, pushing the profession and professionalizing practice and getting other stakeholders in the industry um, and I don't mean within the cybersecurity industry partners whether it be HR um, uh, uh, law, uh, medicine government to understand the role and the importance of cybersecurity in the in the whole ecosystem. So as the says the cyber threats evolve over time, how is the education and certification process going to evolve with that? Because obviously what's important today, like some mm -hmm. cloud's important today, IoT's important today, but there are technologies that don't exist today that are going to exist in a year or two that people are going to have to understand how to protect. How does how does this, the your world deal with those changes to address the testing regimes to make those work? Change is the only constant for sure. Yes, exactly, That's a great yes. question because we, we entertain these uh, all the time. So mm -hmm. whether it be from an educational standpoint and then later on professional development or for the content of the, of the current certification and uh, the detailed content outline or the examination um, blueprint, if you will, um, they are under a constant state of revision. And so it, it is, there is, a, there's a balance. And I like, I, I do, I, I like to talk about this because it, there's often some, some unusual perceptions with regard to this. We have to maintain a balance in terms of availability and currency and recency. Um, what I like to say is we like to be cutting edge, not bleeding edge and certification programs must maintain that balance. So what does that mean? So we have a schedule right now where we formally update our certifications and the resultant education on a three-year cycle. But that doesn't mean we wait for three years to introduce and integrate and change things. There are, there are magnitudes of change, right? So there are, we seed technologies, we seed practices, we seed guidelines and, and, and standards into our content regularly. But the, the broad characterizations of practice and how it's um, organized is a little bit more regularly done on this three-year cycle. For example, there was a period of time where physical security was a very significant portion of the 10 domain CISSP. That's not so relevant anymore. Not that physical security isn't important. However, when someone is looking at a CISSP for a job description and hiring someone for a role, their first thought isn't physical security demands of the position. And so these two things do change. That's a more extreme example, um, but there, there are um, elements all the time where we are seeding, seeding in and more importantly, taking out because not every new technology introduction sticks around forever. Things go away. Right, right. Do you guys work with other certification authorities 
to do to like talk about what it is that you all test about and to you know see where there's overlap and make sure you're testing about the right things and you you all but you all know the same things correctly like your answer on your test is the same answer on this test over here and this test, as opposed to well i got to learn how to do how what the osi stack means for this organization, what it means for this organization, what it means for, I mean, that's a bad example, but you kind of, I think you know what I'm going with there. So that doesn't, no, the OSI stack doesn't change, but yeah. Uh, so what do we, so what do we do? So I, I wouldn't say that we, um, um, we, we collaborate directly with regard to presentation of content. We, we work with partners in the space with regard, you know, uh, our most identifiable uh, competitors in the space. We work collegially um, as an industry with regard to advancing the, the aims of certification, whatever. We wouldn't probably go as far as to discuss um, specific elements of content. There, there might actually be some anti-competitive components to that as well, but that's a whole other story. But we do work with the same partners. So for example, we will work with, uh, you know, NIST with regard to how we um, interface and uh, uniformly refer to certain things within the guidelines and the standards. So we take the same source and we all work collaboratively towards the same sources. We, we don't we don't necessarily work uh, in, in an engineered fashion together, but we do work uh, with third parties. We do like to, to ensure that when um, standards are promulgated uh, in other places that we are, you know, working with things uniformly and correctly. Um, uh, and and the, because CISP is not specifically just a, a, a US-based uh, examination, um, we need to be doing this on a global scale. And so mm -hmm. we're constantly, um, you can imagine, um, uh, not that cybersecurity isn't um, uh, varied enough and, and fast moving enough, um, issues with privacy, which sit alongside uh, cybersecurity proper, um, are, are just as hyperbolic in terms of change these days. You can imagine how that impacts us as well. And so we, we have those same demands and um, uh, from a jurisprudence treatment on the examinations to ensure that we're current. So I'll, I'll get you out here on this question. How do you recommend people prepare for tests like yours and other, other certifications? What's the best way to, like if you were starting out, what's the best way to get ready for, for your tests? Uh, it is a great question. I appreciate that. So what I'm going to tell you is there are no shortcuts. Um, there are no, there's no promised way to do this. There is no magic trick. I've been doing standardized testing for a long time. People love to believe in magic tricks to, uh -huh. go to do certain things. First things first, realize what the certification is. Certification is not just a test. Um, a test is part of a certification. So there is a scheme, there are requirements. If you don't have the work experience, and if you're not being honest with yourself in terms of your preparation, your knowledge, not in addition to your skills and abilities, you're probably not going to do well. Um, even if you can pass the test, it's probably not going to mean much for you. So really be cognizant of, of what the intent is here. So start from that standpoint. Two, um, our examinations are, are based on, on a body of knowledge. Um, being familiar with that is just as important as what is on a content outline for an examination. Practice is this big, an examination is this big. If you're familiar with this, you're going to do better on this. And I know that's my physical representation, <laughs> big, small. Um, you, you, need, you need to get the grounding. You need to start with the basics. Uh, a five-day boot camp is great as a refreshment. It's great for someone to, to get current, to test themselves, to know that they're ready. If that's all you're doing, you're probably not going to do very well. CISSP in particular is a hard examination, as they all are. I will tell you, this is not a knowledge-based exam. Many people, when they take this, say, I have my, let's off the IT certifications. Yes, and you're very smart and you've done very well and you're very accomplished. However, this is a practice exam um, that is based on a lot of situational information, is dependent on the information provided to you. Um, there must be a lot of application and analysis to be successful. You require all these things. 
read the CBK, understand what is in that body of knowledge, prepare yourselves against the domains. And uh, of course, ISC squared, I it would be remiss if I didn't say, we produce incredible examination preparatory information. We have these, our courses are against the CBK. They are not test prep for the exam, but I guarantee if you know the CBK, you will do well on the certification exam eventually. So what you're saying is the 30 minute YouTube video that says, watch this video and you will pass the ISSP is not real is what you're saying. That is not real. <laughs> okay. Not All right. Casey, thanks so much for taking the time. I greatly appreciate it. You've scared me off. I've ever taken the CISSP. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. No. <laughs> Maybe one day. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank yep. you. So once again, I want to thank Casey Marks for taking the time to, to talk to me about ISC squared, uh, his history with the testing regime, and a quick look into certifications and why, you know, if you're getting into the cybersecurity realm, it's something you need to have, something you need to look into, and something you need to really invest in and keep up as your career motors along. So before I let you go today, we're going to talk about our case of the week, since I mentioned earlier talking about botnets. Uh, we were going to talk about an FBI operation from 2007 called Operation Bot Roast. And this is reading from the FBI webpage, archives.fbi.gov. And this is on Operation Bot Roast. And so this is from June of 2007. They're called bot herders, hackers who install malicious software on computers through the internet without the owner's knowledge. Once the software is loaded, they can control the computer remotely. And once they've compromised enough computers, they have a robot network or botnet. Some botnets are huge, tens of thousands of infected computers or more. As a result of Operation Bot Roast, an ongoing and coordinated initiative to disrupt and dismantle these bot herders, the FBI identified about 1 million computers across the country that had been compromised. The FBI has also charged numerous individuals with cyber crimes around the nation as a direct result of a coordination coordinated, I'm sorry, operation, including Robert Soloway of Seattle, Washington. He used botnets to send tens of millions of spam messages touting his website. James Brewer, Arlington, Texas, accused of infecting tens of thousands of computers, including some at Chicago area hospitals. And Jason Michael Downey of Covington, Kentucky, charged with using botnets to disable other systems. So like I said earlier, botnets have a variety of different uses depending on what the bad guy is looking to do. Uh, and so what the FBI did here, those were three separate cases. So the problem that the FBI gets into with cases of similar type is that if they take one down, the other people who are doing the same thing may go into hiding, may destroy evidence. So the FBI does these large-scale operations to try to get everybody at once. And that's what they did with Operation Bot Roast in 2007. Operation 2008, I mean, in 2008, they did Operation Bot Roast 2, basically the same thing. Looked for a bunch of different botnet herders and try to take them down all at the same time. And Operation Bot Roast was launched because the national security implications of the growing botnets were broad. Hackers may use the computers themselves or they may rent out are their botnets to highest bidder. This continues today. This is again, this is 15 years ago that this happened. Botnets, the sell, sale of botnets and botnet herders still exist. Most of them Eastern European, but you can pretty much find them in every country because largely, you know, they go unpunished. These servers have value, especially for ransomware users, because they can distribute their ransomware through spam messages and things, because email is still the number one threat area in which bad guys get into systems. So that's why botnets are still effective. People still have poor security. They still end up getting infected with bots that they may never know are on their system, because again, they are not 
using your system if they're on your computer necessarily to steal information because they want the infrastructure to be able to do what it is that they do. Now, what may happen is the FBI comes to your door and says, hey, this, this activity is occurring from your house, your IP address, and then you find out you have this botnet on your, on your network. But these are things that, that, that law enforcement has to continue to deal with. As I've always said, technology advances very quickly. The bad guys advance at a quicker rate than law enforcement. They will always be ahead of law enforcement. So botnets will continue to evolve and do bad things over time. With that, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to episode 68 of the Cyber Guy podcast. You can find this on all of your favorite podcast providers. Tell your friends, share the word, spread the word, share the information about the about the uh, podcast. If you have thoughts, questions, comments, email me, Darren at thecyberguy.com. Cyber spelled C-Y-B-U-R. As you go through your week, no, knowledge is protection. If you understand the threats that are targeting you, you can assess your risk and proceed wisely online. Thanks so much for the time. We will talk to you soon.